Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no, you know, you could, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped-up car, and he, he complained that the government gave him these piece-of-crap, cheapo cars and that, that were really no match, but he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by QWare. Maintain excellence. 
the alarm kept going off in my Pontiac. Well, get up the next morning, getting ready to head to the track, and my car is out there on jack stands. Going down into one, he deliberately runs us over. And, you know, I'd had it. I mean, that was ridiculous. So, yeah, you know, I went after him. That night, you went after Andy. You got fined $5,000. Where's my money? The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast presented by QWare. And also, I am the 2019 oh, come on. Scene Vault Podcast Playoff Champion. Ah, you pulled out of your know what? <laughs> I pulled it out of where? You know what. <laughs> my guy that I picked for the Homestead finale, Martin Truex Jr., finished second. And where did your guy, you picked who? Denny Hamlin. Denny Hamlin. Was he in he, the race? He was done. Did in, he show up in Homestead? Hey, he was done in by a block of tape on the corner of his car. Hey, let's not talk about pit crew snafus, okay? <laughs> I had tires on the wrong side of the car. That's right. You're a man, Martin Truex Jr. <laughs> so, tires on the wrong side of the car. Okay, so I'm the champion, correct? Uh, I guess under the uh, current system you are. I tell you what, we're going to have to come to some kind of compromise about we this. Had, yeah, uh, some kind of arrangement that will benefit our listeners even more. Well, I'll know? tell you what, let's think about it a little bit. All right, we'll okay? do that. All right, let's think about it while we discuss what we're going to discuss in this week's episode, and then we'll maybe come to grips with what we're going to do in the conclusion. All, All right. right, that sounds good to me. What do you say? So, one other thing that I wanted to mention, Steve, before we get into the episode, I was in Wheeler, Texas this weekend for the 50th anniversary anniversary of the flight of Apollo 12, astronaut Alan Bean, who was the lunar module pilot on that flight, walked on the moon during that flight. He was born in that very small Texas town. Steve, they had an auction during the festivities, okay? And you know how you're always kind of giving me a hard time about how your book on Junior Johnson went into six printings? Yeah. You mean that somebody actually bought that book of yours? You might want to sit down for this. Okay. Okay. John Aaron, who in mission control terms would probably be Dell Earnhardt. Yeah. He was the man in mission control. When he stepped foot in that room, he knew what he was doing. He was the guy right. in mission control. Now, John was there and he brought a couple of copies from his collection of Go Flight, the unsung heroes of mission control, and put them up for auction for this fundraiser for the museum there in Wheeler. Oh, okay. Take a wild guess of what these two books went for. $2.50. $500 each. Each. Are you kidding me? <laughs> and I was like, I've got more copies at home. <laughs> I'll sell you my shirt. <laughs> Absolutely. That's great. $500 each. So you had six printings, and two of my books were auctioned. For five hundred dollars each, that was amazing, <laughs> and I was like, "Are you kidding?" <laughs> I'd be saying that very same thing. Are you kidding, Steve? This week in our first segment, Buckshot Jones. Buckshot Jones. <laughs> That's all I need to say. Buckshot Jones names in our first in racing. <laughs> Ranks right up there with Monk Tate and Junior Niedecken. And Steve, in our second segment, we're going to go back to the April 28th, 1977 issue of Grand National Scene. Now, Steve, what is the significance 
of that 12-page paper. That is the first Grand National scene ever printed. Ever. 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 So we're going to talk a little bit about that issue, how it got started, and kind of some of the obstacles that it had to overcome to become what it became. Yeah, absolutely. And there were plenty of them, by the way. And Steve, this week we have new Patreon support from Blake Sorter. Another signed Steve Wade rookie card is headed out the door to a new owner. Uh, how about that? Get they're, them all out. <laughs> they're going fast. <laughs> now support us on Patreon, support us on PayPal, support QWare, and also, Steve, support Brian Kelp because he was the very first person who really stepped up to the plate and believed in us as a good platform sure. to advertise his products. And I will always be appreciative of that. And also, Steve, I tried something a little bit different with the Buckshot interview, and I opened it up to Patreon supporters and asked them to come up with questions for Buckshot. So during the interview, you're going to actually hear the voices of some of the folks who keep this show going. Cool, man. Through Patreon. Yeah, that's and great. got some great questions. So to be involved in that, all you have to do is support us on Patreon. $5 a month, you'll receive one of these beautiful Grand National Scene commemorative issues from Darlington, plus one classic issue of Winston Cup Scene. Do $10 a month. You'll get the papers and the Steve Wade signed rookie oh, card. Oh, you don't want to miss that. <laughs> you do not want to miss that. So <laughs> in all seriousness, help us out on Patreon. Help us to continue to be able to do this podcast. You can do that on patreon.com slash the scene vault podcast. Or if you would prefer to just do a one-time show of support for however much, you can do that at paypal.me slash the scene vault podcast. Buckshot, to start off with, we have basically the same question from Chris Clark and Justin Hall. Hey, Buckshot. This is Chris Clark from the wonderful state of Virginia. I had a question for you. My question is, how did you obtain the nickname Buckshot? Sounds cool. What's the story behind it? Hello, this is Justin Hall from Hope Mills, North Carolina, near Fayetteville. My question for Buckshot is, is Buckshot your real name? And if so, tell us where you got it from, or if it's a nickname, how did you get the name Buckshot? That's a good question. <laughs> um, I've always I always get asked that, but I guess I was about two years old. Me and my cousins were running around in the house, and somehow I slipped and hit the side of the table, my head, and uh, my grandfather picked me up thinking I was hurt, and a knot was already forming on my head, and I wasn't crying, I guess, or anything. All I wanted to do is get down and keep playing. And he goes, that boy's tough as a buckshot. And that's the name. I mean, it's stuck ever since then. I mean, the only time I ever got called Roy is if I was in, got in trouble with my mom. She always talked about my first name. <laughs> or if it was another driver, and we'll get to that yeah, driver yeah, later. Yeah, another driver. <laughs> now, I didn't realize it, but I got on Racing Reference, and you had attempted to qualify for Bush Series races as far back as 1993, when you went to Martinsville and Hickory late in the year, how did that deal come about? You know, I'm thinking about that. I'm trying to think when is the first time. Maybe it was all yeah. the way back then. It was Martinsville and Hickory. You DNQ'd both places. I don't know. That was such a long time ago. <laughs> um, we were just, yeah. you know, still running late models. Um, and an opportunity come up um, to buy a Bush car. So we did and, you know, just – Tried to attempt to to make a couple of them, but uh, it was a big learning curve, you know, 
not just with the setups, but the bias ply tires versus the oh, radials. Yeah. yeah. It's like with a bias ply, you could slide, you could feel it. The radial, it's like you were spun out, and then you felt like you got loose. <laughs> yeah. So that was just, that was a big change. I mean, it was just a big change going from late models to bush. Um, you know, Tony Barkley, I think, is, was the best there was in the late models. And, you know, it was a learning curve for him because, you know, the cars are so much different. But um, he got the hang of it pretty quick. And uh, like I said, with late models, he was one of the best out there. Now, were you going to school and driving at the same time? Or how did that work? I graduated uh, college, what was it, 93. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, when I was Where'd doing late Where'd you graduate models, from? Georgia? University of Georgia. Okay. Bulldog. Yes, sir. Billy Jones, your dad, was – I'm going to tell you. I mean, he was one of my favorite people in the sport. I mean, he was behind you all the way, good, bad, or indifferent, what was going on in the racetrack. What was it like having him behind you? Uh, you couldn't ask for anything any better. I mean, he was my biggest supporter, but he was also, like, my biggest critic. I mean, he always <laughs> told me yeah. exactly, you know, how yeah. it was. But uh, no matter what, I've always known, you know, he's always there. Yeah. Um, He's always been that way. Um, other people that, you know, are friends, they'll tell you that they've ever needed something, no matter what, dad's always there. I know that you were talking to David Pearson at one time. Was he actually a consultant on the team, or was that maybe too formal a title, and did he come along with Ricky, so to speak? Um, really, I think David just come over and, you know, helped us out or helped me out. Because uh, where the shop was, we were renting David Pearson's shop, and his house was right okay. across the street. Okay, All right. so he would always come over there, and he went to a couple of tracks with us for the since it was the first time I'd ever been there. He would try and show me the line, but uh, most of the time he'd always scare me pretty good. Now, how would he scare you? Well, on road course racing, um, he was teaching me about the downshifting, and we were in a little S10 truck, and he's flying down the road and i'm thinking he's going to turn into the shop and he wasn't he, he kept going straight but i was scared to death i was like there's no way we're going to make this turn <laughs> yeah but darlington was probably the the funniest uh i guess you could say it's funny now we went out in the van and he was like two inches off that wall and yeah. he was trying to show me the line so he rides around two laps come in he goes all right he goes do you understand do you see where the line is and i'm like Hell no, I don't see where the line's at. I mean, you scared, you know, whatever out of me. my eyes closed. Yeah. So he'd just sit there and look at you and shake his head. But, uh, yeah, he was always over if I ever had questions. Um, he was good. It was great having him. But it was just fun being around David because David liked to do pranks. Uh, I did too. And we were always no, doing really? that. You oh, did? Yeah. I never noticed that. No, I usually didn't. <laughs> <laughs> 1996, the team is going to try and run a full schedule, a full Bush Series schedule for the first time. But you hit a pretty tough patch early in the season. You DNQ at Daytona, and then you miss four races in a row in Atlanta, Nashville, Darlington, and Bristol. Was there ever a point in there where you thought about maybe trying something else for a while and then coming back to the Bush Series? No. Um, we – what you would refer to earlier, I guess, 93, 94, we tried to make a race or yeah. two. Yeah. And it was just we needed a veteran, you know, crew chief. Um, and it just so happened um, the lady that was doing our PR 
knew that I guess, I guess it was Alliance Racing back then. Yeah. Where Ricky yeah. was with uh, right. Dennis Setzer. Yeah. And that they were closing shop. So dad got a meeting, went and talked to Ricky. And in 95, you know, we ran just those handful of races. Um, Ricky wanted to see kind of what I was going to be like, you know, how this whole deal would work out. Everything was good. So made a deal where we moved up to South Carolina, rented David's shop. And, you know, we were behind because uh, we didn't have the cars, yeah. you know, at that time. And I think that probably hurt more than anything is just constantly trying to pay, play catch up. Um, but it was a big learning curve. I mean, like I said before, running late models and then jumping in, you know, a bush car, it was a lot different. But no, I never looked at it that, you know, I need to do something else. The first time I ever drove a car, I knew right then this is, you know, what I wanted to do. You go to Milwaukee, 1996. What do you remember about that weekend? Dick Trickle. <laughs> um, I remember... I guess he was running first and I was second. We were under caution. And we're going down the backstretch because it's one to go. And all of a sudden, something came out of his window. Well, we run, I think, maybe a lap or two. A caution comes out again. I told the guys, I'm like, man, right before that last restart, I swear Dick threw out a cigarette. They're like, yeah, he usually <laughs> smokes under a caution. And I just like, i never seen that before. But – uh Milwaukee, I guess, you know, we got spun early in the race, so yeah. we were kind of off. But that track was coming apart. Yeah. And yeah. for some reason, I don't remember why, I started dropping my left sides off down there, uh, kind of the middle of three and four, like off the track, almost oh, yeah. into the dirt. Yeah. And it didn't make that car turn. Okay. And it's just, man, that car started to come alive. And then when it was the one, to, I guess the last lap, I was trying to be too cautious, and, you know, Mike McLaughlin almost beat us back to the line. Dick Trickle, you mentioned him. He spins off turn four with, I think, three laps to go. What did you see there? I Really, I didn't see anything at that time. Um, I know going back and watching the film that it was kind of scary that, you know, he's sitting there like that, and that was a bad place oh, that yeah. someone come off. But – uh you know, NASCAR didn't throw the caution. I guess he got it fired back up and got rolling. And you were trying to play it pretty cautious because there, when Dick spun off turn four, you had a pretty good lead over Mike. Yes. But that last lap, man, coming off turn four, he just about got you. Yep. He uh, just about got you. That's where I kind of learned that, you know, it don't matter. I mean, you should still keep running, you know, how would I say this? You shouldn't back off like that. I mean, just that one little stake you make can cost you. You need to keep running just the exact same way that you've been running. I know, you know, watching some people will back off, but uh, we weren't really pushing it that hard, and the car was just super fast. But I guess since I thought it was going to be our first win, uh, was too cautious. Hey guys, Fred Rosado here. Uh, thanks for taking my question. Buckshot, just want to throw out there, we're all big Buckshot Jones fans, man. Miss you out there week in and week out. Uh, but I, before I get to my question, I got to ask, is is this being recorded live in the studio? And are you there with Rick with a pie in hand ready for payback? Because I would love to see that footage, man. We're still searching for the footage of when Rick got you back in the day. And uh, as soon as I find that footage, I'm going to make sure it gets sent to you, buddy. 
anyhow, let me get to my question. What was it like carrying that trophy home from Milwaukee for your first victory? Thanks again, bud. I'd say that's a good question, Fred. Uh, that was pretty exciting. Um, you know, we flew back, I guess, that night. And, you know, like my mom, dad, sister, several friends of mine drove all the way up from Georgia to South Carolina. So when we got off the plane, you know, they were there. But uh, it was just – it was a great feeling. You know, it had been hard when we first started. Uh, and then to see where it kind of paid off, uh, very exciting, I guess. Where's that trophy now? Uh, at our farm, in my bedroom, at our farm, my mom's house. Hey, Buckshot, Rick Phillips from PA here. I was wondering if you had a favorite track or a particular style of racing. Thanks. Rick, honestly, I like a lot of tracks. Talladega, I always liked it. I love Bristol, Dover, you know, definitely Milwaukee, uh, New Hampshire also. But, no, I mean, it wasn't a short track or a super speedway. I kind of liked all of them. Uh, you know, Darlington was always a light because it was so challenging that, you know, it's just you race the racetrack, you know, you're not racing other people. Um, it's just race that racetrack. So every track had its own unique thing about it, but there's not one track that I would say, you know, was my favorite. Talladega. 1997. I did not know this until we talked about it before we started recording. You and Base Motorsports and Phil Parsons' team were all at the same hotel. Is that correct? Elton Sawyer's team. Elton Sawyer's team. Yeah. Tell me about that. <laughs> I guess, you know, our hotels, we had someone that, I guess a lot of teams had people or a person that would book your rooms for you. Somehow, uh, the same person we use, I guess, Base Motorsports did, Elton Sawyer's team. Um, so we got in a, a different kind of hotel, so to speak. But we were all just sitting there joking around, and I guess uh, Bob Sutton, Elton Sawyer, and them, they had some fireworks, like little bottle rockets. And I kind of was on the second floor and leaned over and threw a bottle rocket. And when I did, it went in Bob Sutton's room, and his jacket was on the floor. <laughs> And it blew up, and it kind of caught his jacket on fire. <laughs> so we were all kind of laughing about it. And then that night, the alarm kept going off in my Pontiac. And I finally walked outside and, you know, didn't see anybody, but somebody, you know, kept setting it off all night. Well, get up the next morning, getting ready to head to the track, and my car is out there on jack stands. You know, Elton oh, Sawyer wow. and his guys went to the, <laughs> I guess – Walmart, Kmart. All four tires? Yeah, all four tires. So I walk out, and they were still in the room, and I'm kind of just looking at the car. And uh, they come out laughing. I'm like, well, man, who put the dent in the side of the car? They're like, Randy. Randy was the one, you know, after we'd set it off, he kept setting it off. So it was like, all right. Well, we get to the racetrack, uh, you know, go into that driver's meeting, and Randy got up and talked and was basically – telling everybody, hey, you need to give and take at the beginning of this race, um, you know, race at the end. So it wasn't that far into the race, you know, Randy got in the back of us and spun, and Joe Nemechek ended up hitting us. Well, me and Joe were in the garage kind of repairing the cars, and he come up, and he goes, man, you shouldn't take that. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, I told my spotter, you know, Randy was driving kind of erratic that early in the race. So, yeah, I mean, it did upset me because I knew that he'd hit me, but I guess Joe's saying something too. 
And, you know, we went out and tried to make the best of the day. And at the end of the race, he just come up beside me, you know, and we got together. <laughs> <laughs> you got together, huh? <laughs> yeah. What happened? He come up to the outside of me. and uh, Now, this is after the checkered flag. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't want to – I guess it was just seeing his car and him coming up like that. Yeah, because I, I was still upset about it, so got into the back of him. But then, you know, what kind of really ticked me off is we went in the hauler, NASCAR hauler, and he said he never touched me. And I'm like, man, the back of my car is black. It, there's no blue on it back there. I said, your car is blue, and there's blue all under the bumper. And still said, you know, he didn't hit me, and it was just, you know, I think people, certain drivers have rivalries. I don't think there's something that, everything always starts out there on the track, and for some reason it started with me and him. Got to ask, according to Randy in the NASCAR hauler, he decked you. Really? That's what he said. (laughs) Did I come out with a mark on me? (laughs) You're not saying that Randy LaJoy would stretch the truth, yeah, are well, you? Well, all I'm saying, he's stretching it right if he said that. <laughs> okay. You are not confirming. You're absolutely denying that happened. Uh, 1,000%. And all you got to do is Mike Helton was in there. And I forget who all was in there. Ask Mike. Because I... back then, if you did that, you know you were getting fined. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I got fined for – Mike never asked me in that hauler, you know, did I hit him? He asked me what happened. And I told him that, you know, hey, it tore our car up. You know, Randy come up on the outside. I mean, I was just trying to hold on to my car. Well, he called me, I guess, Mike called me Monday. It was Monday or Tuesday. And he asked direct question. He goes, did you hit Randy? And I said, well, Mike said, if you're going to ask me, you know, an honest question, I'll give you an honest answer. Yeah, I did. I said, but you didn't ask me that in the hauler. He goes, I know. He goes, there was only one official that saw it. There's no video. There's no nothing. And I said, well, I don't care if anybody saw it. If you ask me a question, an honest question, I'm going to give you an honest answer. And, you know, he, I got fined for that. They can now going back to something. I just remembered at Talladega when we were in that NASCAR hauler, he said he never touched me. Okay. I mean, he said that. He goes, I just spun. Well, when they interviewed him, he said that he got hit from behind and he hit me. Right. So I recorded it, and I FedExed that to Mike Helton and said, hey, in the holler, he told you he never touched me. He walks out, does an interview, and says, hey, he got hit from behind, he hit me. And then, you know, we had me and Randy had – Problems down the road. Well, speaking of which, <laughs> Bristol Night Race, that very same year, again, what went down from your perspective? Uh, the worst part of that night for me has always been that, you know, got on the back of, you know, Mike McLaughlin, yeah. you know, um, and that was purely racing. And I, I talked to Mike, I even talked to his crew chief, I guess, that following Monday, um, and told him, you know, it's my fault. You know, I made the mistake. Well, Randy – you know, had caught him, rode behind him a couple laps. And as Bristol is, you know, I barely nudged him up the track. He didn't lose any positions except that one. And I guess I nudged him in turn two, coming off two. Well, we go down into – come back going down into one, 
he deliberately runs us over. There's no question oh, yeah, about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, I'd had it. I mean, that was ridiculous. So yeah, you know, I went after him. Um, I know some people loved it, some people disagreed with it, but you gotta understand it's always the heat of the moment. And you know, he already wrecked us at Talladega. Now he wrecked us at Bristol. That was just something I could not let that go. Do you remember the noise of the crowd? Because when you went up the track between turns three and four, I was in the press box, and I don't guess I've ever heard a reaction from a crowd like that. I mean, I think it's the crowd there at Bristol. They know there's going to be contact. They want to see contact like that. But uh, no, I mean, me hearing it or anything, no. Okay. All right. Now, I don't know if you remember this, but that afternoon before the race, you and I kind of hung out in your holler, and we I was basically trying to get out of the heat for a little while. But we hung out in your holler, and we were talking about this, and we were talking about that. You'd had some run-ins with other drivers, and I think you'd been fined a time or two before that. And I told you at that point, I said, if you ever get fined again, you're going to owe me that same amount. <laughs> that night, Buckshot, that night, you went after Andy. You got fined $5,000. Where's my money? Well, to back up, <laughs> the only time I've gotten fined was at Talladega with Randy. Okay. Uh, five grand and then got fined five grand, you know, from Bristol. Okay. And, you know. Well, if you want to make it 10, that's fine with me. Oh, no. <laughs> but, you know, I don't remember you saying that, you know, I would have to pay you the same amount. Oh, okay. So you're denying that. Yeah, I got a little forgetful there, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Again, the following year, you and Randy get into it again at Nazareth. Was there ever a point where you and he tried to sit down and iron things out, or did your dad ever say something to you? I didn't. I mean, getting tore up cars, you know, and, you know, that night, I mean, we had a chance to win at Bristol. Um, but it's, you know, it's also all the work that your guys do, the crew. Yeah. And to go out there and just start destroying cars, no. I mean, but I guess it was after Bristol. I'm trying to think when that Bill France, you know, sat Bill me down. F- really? Yeah, uh, he did. And I, I think it was after Bristol, Mike had said, look, you know, from now on, if there's a problem, you need to come tell one of the officials and, you know, and we'll take care of it. Cause I told him, I don't want to keep wrecking or, you know, getting tore up cars. And I don't remember all of it. There was so much back then, but basically me and Randy were told that if we touched one another, we would be parked for the, that race and the next race. If there was, if, even if we just touched each other, NASCAR, I guess, had had it that they weren't going to put up with it. And they said, if you're involved in the same wreck and y'all touch each other and it's a multi-car wreck, you're parked. (laughs) They're basically saying there will be no excuse, no nothing. And, you know, I forget if that was before or after I got into Randy at uh, Nazareth. Yeah. And in all honesty, when I got into him at Nazareth, that was no retaliation. That was nothing. Everybody got jumbled up. And I think... I think he ended up hitting Patty Moise before I hit him. So I'm like, yeah. you should know it wasn't intentional. Yeah. And then I think there was one other time he was running for uh, James Finch at Charlotte, and me and him got together. And 
I, I wouldn't do that to James, and I wasn't doing yeah. it to Randy. Um, the only two times I'd ever gone after Randy was Talladega and then Bristol. Any other time, no. I've never gone after to intentionally wreck them or anything. So did the two of you try to sit down and talk it out, or did your dad say anything to you? No. Me and Randy, you know, never talked. I mean, I guess it was so much had been said and it had happened. Yeah. That I just was like, hey, NASCAR told us, so leave it alone. I guess the only time me and Randy ever really talked, and it wasn't about mine and his issue, is when Adam got killed. Um Really? Loudon, yeah, because I don't know if it was Randy's team or who it was had like a like a dinner or something at their house. I don't remember where it was. Um, I guess it was that Friday night, and Randy was there, and you know we sat down, we were talking. And I said, "Man, this is the only time I've ever thought maybe getting out of racing," because when Adam got killed, I just never, you never imagine that's going to happen to you. Um, but to see that happen to Adam, yeah, that that really tore me up. How close did you come to walking away? Real close. Um, and I. Well, let me ask you this: How much of a factor did that play when you did walk away? Because it wasn't too long after that that you. I didn't. Okay. Not at all. All right. Not at all. It was just, I guess you, in that moment, you know, seeing what happened, you know, to somebody. Yeah. Um, you know, whether it's Adam or any driver, but it makes you think. I mean, it made me think. But it was just that's the sport. It was kind of you can be out on the highway and, you know, and get killed. But I don't know. I guess since it was one of the people you raced against, it made you kind of look at things. It made me look at stuff a little bit different. Hey listeners, this is Eric Quinn, General Manager of QWare. We are so proud to partner with Rick and Steve and the Seaton Vault Podcast in order to bring you these great shows that you're hearing every single week. For over 30 years, the scene was the only place you needed to go to find the NASCAR content and news that you needed and wanted. The most talented writers, the greatest photographers in all sports made the scene the ultimate source for NASCAR information. At QWare, we've taken that same philosophy and applied it to our online maintenance management system. One source. One solution that provides you with all of the information you need to get the job done. At QWare, we know that every building, every campus, every factory, school, shop, museum, healthcare facility, every office, every building, it it all needs to be maintained. If the information your facilities team needs to keep your building up and running isn't at their fingertips, then you're probably losing time and money. QWare allows your maintenance team to access the important information from anywhere in the world with just a push of a button. As proud as we are to help bring you the Scene Vault podcast, we at QWare are just as proud to provide the most simple-to-use, inexpensive cloud maintenance solution on the market today. We would be honored to have you look at QWare and see what we can do for your workplace. Now enjoy the rest of this week's podcast, and when you get a minute, check us out at qwarecmms.com forward slash scene. That's qwarecmms.com forward slash scene. QWare is a product of the CNS companies. QWare. Maintain excellence. Well, now tell me, how did you and Buckshot get started? How did you form the relationship that you have? <laughs> well, that's a very good question. We certainly didn't come from the same economic background. <laughs> but I will say this. 
the best I can figure is that Billy Jones, his dad, was just flat out awesome. I respected his story so much because he hosted a dinner in Atlanta for several media members two or three years in a row. And it was just something to hear him tell how he basically built this very successful business after having started out literally as a ditch digger. So he was a self-made man. Right. And so I respected Billy. And then to interview Buckshot, (laughs) there's no filter when it comes to Buckshot. So Anytime I sat down and talked to Buckshot, you knew that it was going to be good copy. And then we started joking around and talking and everything. So, and again, I mean, it wasn't like we hung out at each other's houses or anything like that. But at the racetrack, we had a pretty good working relationship. I've had a couple relationships like that. I don't know how you feel. And then the 2000 Major League All-Star Baseball game was held in Atlanta. And I went to Billy and I asked him if he could possibly swing a couple of tickets for myself and my son, who was a big baseball fan. And it was kind of late notice. It was the day before the ball game. (laughs) (laughs) Not the best timing. (laughs) And he did swing a couple of tickets and they were literally one row from the very top of the stadium. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we were technically inside the stadium. So that was pretty cool. And Steve, I'll be honest with you. I don't know how appropriate it was, but when we went by Billy's office to pick up the tickets, he reached in his wallet and he gave my son, who was 11 years old at the time, gave him $100 to spend at the ball game. Wow. When he gave Richard that money, Richard, his eyes were as big around his hubcap. So that was pretty cool. That was pretty cool. So, And then, of course, we've talked about the good times and the jokes that Buckshot and I kind of played on each other. So it, it was good times. It was good times talking with Buckshot at the racetrack. 1996, he won his first race at Milwaukee. And not only does he win at Milwaukee in Wisconsin, he beats Dick Trickle. To do it. That is doing something. That is doing something because Dick Trickle, there's no telling how many laps he had turned at that racetrack. Or how many races he has won. Well, I thought it was kind of funny because he did mention in this interview, he he said that they were under caution and Buckshot was behind him and he couldn't believe his eyes. Something came out of the window of Dick's car. He radioed his crew and he said, guys, I don't, I'm not sure, but I think Dick has just thrown a cigarette out the window of his car. <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. And then with a couple of laps to go, Dick Trickle spun off turn forward. Wasn't any kind of contact or anything like that from Buckshot. I believe he just got in there kind of hot. And then he's trying to get turned around. And Steve, NASCAR did not throw a caution. And he's backing up on the racetrack. He's pulling forward. He's almost in traffic. And then here comes Mike McLaughlin after Buckshot. And Buckshot at that point had a pretty healthy cushion over Mike. So he started to take it really easy, and he just about gave it away. Coming off turn four on the last lap to the checkered flag, I don't know that Buckshot beat him by more than a few inches. Well, the point is he won the race, and that was great. And I remember that Darlene Patterson, you remember her? Yes. Yeah, Darlene Patterson was kind of helping that team out, kind of getting started and everything. And after he won at Milwaukee, she brought Buckshot to introduce him to me. And, yeah, that I guess that's how we met. Yeah. 
at well, first. I, said, so. I tell you what, a cigarette flying out of the car. Now, with Dick Trickle, <laughs> of course, that is no surprise. But a driver smoking in the car is unusual, but it has happened. As a matter of fact, it's unusual, but it's not unprecedented. Oh, by but, any means. And as a matter of fact, for all the years that David Pearson drove for the Wood Brothers, yeah, he was always seen after a race on the cool down lap with a cigarette in his Didn't mouth. Didn't they have a they cigarette built, lighter? They put a yeah. cigarette lighter in his car. <laughs> David Pearson raced with a cigarette lighter. So Buckshot wins at Milwaukee in 1996, and then in 1997, I had talked to Randy LaJoy about the brush-ups that he had with Buckshot. So, of course, <laughs> I had to get Buckshot's perspective. And again, I found out something that I did not know. Not only did Randy and Buckshot get together at Talladega in 1997, which kind of triggered their feud, their teams had stayed at the same hotel that weekend. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and let's just say they evidently had themselves a fine old time. <laughs> let's just say that bottle rockets were involved. Are you kidding me? <laughs> bottle rockets were involved, and then when Buckshot came out of his hotel room to his car, all four tires had been stolen off of his car. Now, he did not name Randy LaJoy's team as the culprit. He named Elton Sawyer's team oh, really? as the culprit. Now, Elton Sawyer is a big NASCAR executive now. He's a straight-laced, buttoned-up guy. Really? And he steals yeah. the hubcaps off of somebody's car. <laughs> no, he doesn't steal the hubcaps. He steals the whole tire off the car. I'll tell you what. What went on at that hotel is not exactly the same thing as having cool beers around the pool, is it? <laughs> and then whatever happens with them during the race happened. Randy said that he punched Buckshot in the NASCAR hauler. Buckshot insisted in no uncertain terms that it did not happen. No way, no how. I don't know that I want to take sides on that, but I will say this. Like I said when we talked about it in the Randy LaJoy interview, I just can't imagine Randy not getting fined. Well, I find If it a, did happen. I, look, Randy LaJoy has his story. Buckshot has his story. I find it kind of hard to believe that Randy could get away with a punch in the NASCAR holler in front of a NASCAR official. That's kind of difficult for me to believe. Later that same year, we go to Bristol, and Buckshot and I, again, are in his holler before the race, and we just talked. Yeah. You know, we're just shooting the breeze. You know, I'm trying to stay cool and everything. And so we talked for probably 45 minutes, and during that discussion, I made the comment that if Buckshot got fined again, that he would owe me the same amount of money. And Buckshot said, okay, yeah, sure, okay, okay. <laughs> and that night, he and Randy got into their scrape, <laughs> and Buckshot was fined $5,000. So I want my money. <laughs> has he paid you yet? No. I didn't think so. No, he has not paid me my money yet. So, And I will say this, speaking of Bristol and my discussion with Buckshot, it's probably one of the funnier things that happened between Buckshot and I. So as I'm coming out of the lounge of the transporter, coming down the steps, I see Buckshot's PR person, Nicole Allen. She's standing there minding her own business, just as innocent as could be. And I turned around to Buckshot and I kind of whispered, I said, just follow my lead. 
So I start yelling at Buckshot, I will print anything I want to about you. You said it. You can't take it back, so I'm going to write it. (laughs) Buckshot just grinned, and he knew immediately what I was going to do. And he said, give me your recorder. I'm going to take that tape, and I'm going to smash it all to hell. And so, I mean, we tore loose on each other. And Nicole, she came running back to the back of the transporter where we were standing and tried to get between us. <laughs> and her eyes, I mean, her eyes were about to pop out of her head. And she goes, Buckshot, what did you say? <laughs> and Buckshot goes, it doesn't matter what I said. He can't print it. Oh, I'll kick your ass and all that kind of thing. So that was pretty doggone funny. That is a dirty trick. No, <laughs> that was just harmless fun. <laughs> And they did get into it at Talladega. They got into it at Bristol. And then the following year, they got into it at Nazareth. And evidently, NASCAR sat down with at least Buckshot and said that if anything happened between the two of them again, they would be parked. And I think, to be honest with you, it was probably time for that. Probably so. You know, that's not the first time NASCAR sat some drivers down and told them to behave, you know. Well, you know, I think that kind of thing happens quite a bit. When two drivers are going after each other, they do get called to the NASCAR hauler to kind of get straightened out. I kind of remember Carl Edwards and Brad Keselowski. Yeah. That was a big one. I think that they kind of had to step in and take care of business. So, And uh, Tony Stewart just named somebody. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of Nazareth, in 1998, I got one of my all-time most colorful quotes ever from Buckshot. Like I said, he had no filter. And that day, he did not. And this is what he said in the following week's issue of Winston Cup scene. (laughs) He said, I wish that sure as hell wouldn't have happened. I don't need no shit. No feud started back between us. If I was in his shoes, hell, I'd probably be a little angry right now. The same things happened before with me and him. And I think he knows I don't want to start no shit. I don't want to get no shit started. Buckshot, could you be more direct? (laughs) Yeah, so that's one of the reasons why I like talking to Buckshot. I got good copy from him. Listeners, follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at SpeedwayTSJ.Etsy.com. We've talked many, many times about the inventory that he has. And again, it is just outstanding. I enjoy just going through the pages and seeing what he has available. Absolutely. It's amazing. And bringing back some of those memories. Yeah, I remember that day. I remember that race. I remember that paint scheme and so forth. So, yeah, I think it's pretty cool. That's half the fun. I've looked at his inventory, and just like you said, you see cars in paint schemes that bring everything back to you from that time period. So, again, follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens, and check out his inventory at SpeedwayTSJ.Etsy.com. Steve, April 28th, 1977 issue of Grand National Scene. You were at Roanoke at that time, okay? How did the idea for that paper first come about? You know, it's kind of a very interesting story. Rob Griggs is not from Alabama, but that's where he was when he and Gary McCready teamed up to do a county newspaper. I believe it was a weekly paper. They were in Notasoga, Alabama, and I think it was the Coosa County 
press or something like that that they called it. Greg stumbled upon the idea of doing a newspaper about NASCAR and NASCAR alone. In other words, he wasn't going to mess with any other form of racing because none of that was popular in Alabama at all. So his idea was he could come out with a weekly NASCAR newspaper that his Alabama readers would love. And that's how Grand National Scene got started. Rob and Jerry were the only staff members at that newspaper. <laughs> yeah. And when they started up Grand National Scene, of course, they didn't have any writers. They didn't have any photographers. What they did was make up the first issue almost entirely from press releases. Press releases, yeah. yeah. And photos provided yeah. by R.J. Reynolds. Yeah. And you can tell that from some of the sure. copy, and we'll discuss that in just a minute. Now, I have a trivia question for you. There were seven driver photos on the cover. Yeah. Who were the seven drivers? Oh, God, I can't remember that. I've got that issue, by the way, somewhere around here. I'll take a stab at it. Uh, Richard Petty. Wow, that's a given. David yeah. Pearson. Uh, yes. Gail Yarbrough. Yes. Daryl Waltrip. No. He wasn't on there? No. Dick Brooks? Yes. I thought that one. And uh, three more. Tell me. Dave Marcus? Uh-huh. Bobby Allison uh-huh. and Buddy Baker. How about that? Oh, so <laughs> seven guys on the cover. Steve, this is another question I've always kind of had. The design of the paper was something that we don't really see today. The paper came folded in half so that the front cover was actually on the right hand side of what would today be the last page. And, of course, the back page, the back cover, would be on the left-hand side of the back page. So then when you unfolded the paper and opened it up, you had what amounted to another front page. What was the reasoning for that kind of design? <laughs> you or know, was there one? I, mean, I don't know that there was a reason for it. I'm guessing that it has something to do with uh, using as much paper as you can to good advantage. So you can create more, shall we say, copy by folding it as it was, then you could just loan. In other words, what would have been the normal back page now has two, you know, places for more material on it than it would have. So I'm guessing that's one of the reasons for it. And it stayed that way through, I believe, mid-1982 when it switched to the more standard tabloid yeah. format that we became familiar with. Now, you've talked on the show in the past about watching Rob in the Talladega infield, selling the newspapers for a quarter each. That being said, how hard was it in those early days to keep that paper afloat? Well, I'm sure it was very hard because I'm not sure that Rob was involved in any kind of mailing at all back then. I think that was just starting up for him. So to keep the paper afloat had to be very difficult. And about the only way he could do it was direct sales. And obviously, the most logical place for him to go to conduct direct sales was at Talladega, the track, you know, right nearby in the neighborhood. That had to be a very, very difficult road for him to follow. I don't honestly know how he survived with that newspaper, even one year. As a matter of fact, I remember talking with some guys after watching Rob, you know, try to peddle those papers in the infield of Talladega, and we all said, you know, he's not going to make it. There's no way he's going to make it. Four years later, I was working for him. Do you have any idea how the name of Rob's column came about? Grits and chitlins. <laughs> no, and I don't think I want to know. <laughs> Grits and chitlins. You know, and I think that speaks to how humble the beginnings were there. And I think they were basically kind of, 
you know, they were flying by the seat of their pants in those Absolutely. early years a little bit. But Rob was smart enough to know that the place that he had to get started was there in Alabama. Okay, I think that's one reason why he calls Colin Grits and Chitlins. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. one of the flavor of, of where he was working, being uh, kept into the, into the newspaper. And again, the best thing he ever did was to center that paper around NASCAR and Grand National Racing because he didn't have to get involved with any other form of motorsports by doing that. I think by keeping the paper as a Grand National NASCAR paper was the seed to his success. Well, I think the efforts were more focused, certainly. Yeah, had to be. And I mentioned the Grits and Chitlins column. I don't know exactly when it changed, but as the paper became more uh, for lack of a better term, professional, the name of that column evolved into Seen on the Circuit, yeah. which then became the name of our breaking news section. Right. I think this issue is so, it's just quaint. It's just <laughs> quaint way, because <laughs> this issue carried coverage of the spring races at Martinsville, Wilkesboro, Darlington, and Bristol. I mean, they crammed a lot of press releases right. into this newspaper. Kel Yarbrough won at North Wilkesboro on March 27th, his 38th birthday, actually his 38th birthday. And in this very short story, Robin Schilgnecht won the City Corp Rookie Ooh. of the Race Award for finishing 15th, for 46 laps down. And it was the second and final start of Robin's career. Came back to Martinsville the following spring, but failed to qualify. So, Robin, give us a call. We'd love to talk to you. <laughs> See what happened to you. And then DW won at Darlington on April 3rd, his fourth career victory, but his first on a track of more than a mile in length. Daryl was running in third place behind leader Bobby Allison and David Pearson when a tire blew on Dick Brooks's lap car Coming out of turn four, he tried making it to the end on his inner liner, but then got hit by J.D. McDuffie. Bobby Allison, who was driving in relief of his brother Donnie, bobbled a little bit in water from Brooks's car. David Pearson lifted off the throttle while D.W. <laughs> gunned it through the mess to take the lead yeah, with Richard Petty right behind him. Yeah. Daryl won the race, and the race eventually ended under caution, but not without some controversy. As usual. <laughs> As usual in the late 1970s, evidently. Yeah. Bobby thought that he had beaten Daryl to the yellow flag and then <laughs> tried to wedge himself between DW and the pace car, and Richard didn't know where things stood, and he kept the front of his car right on DW's rear bumper. I saw that. I was down there at the time, and I saw that, and up in the press box, we did not know what the heck was Bobby was trying to do. It was just mystifying. We found out later, of course, that he thought he had beaten Daryl to the yellow. That was quite a sight to see. A guy trying to nudge his way in between <laughs> two cars. They were evidently bumping and banging a little bit and giving each other a little bit of sign language. <laughs> but DW did get credit for the win. And then on April 17th at Bristol, Kel Yarborough led... <laughs> All well, but five laps. Uh, not unusual at that time with Holy a Junior cow, Johnson car on short track. Good night. He whooped him. <laughs> I saw him win a race by seven laps there. Can once. you imagine the social media outrage? <laughs> that would <laughs> Twitter have meltdown. <laughs> and then finally, Kale Yarbrough won a range-shortened race at Martinsville on April the 24th. What I found to be interesting was just how kind of jumbled up in the paper it was. I mean, it certainly wasn't in chronological order. 
Martinsville coverage began on page three, which I can understand because it was the most current and the freshest news. Then North Wilkesboro followed on page four, and (laughs) that consisted of just eight paragraphs and not a single quote. Then Darlington was on page five and it was a little bit longer, but like North Wilkesboro didn't have a single quote. And then Bristol was kind of buried on page nine. And again, there were no quotes. So these were basically press releases. Oh, yeah. That's all they were. That's all that Rob and Gary could manage. They had no staff, and they certainly were not in any position <laughs> to get credentials to these races. There were news items in this issue on Nashville's Cup races being carried live worldwide on something called (laughs) the Nashville Sound of Auto Racing Network, (laughs) as well as Armed Forces Radio. And then Dover was going to carry closed-circuit color TV in its air-conditioned backstretch grandstand. Now, I thought it was just strange that live color TV, closed-circuit TV, was news back then. (laughs) Well, let's put it this way. You take everything you can get your hands on. (laughs) And then finally, there was an item in this issue about Elizabeth Taylor going to serve as the Grand Marshal at Charlotte. Which she did. And Steve, the only real feature in this issue was on Janet Guthrie, and it didn't have a byline, but it was a huge story. I mean, it was... It was another long press release is what it was. Was it really? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it was a long press release of what it was, and if I'm not mistaken, I think it was put out by Charlotte Motor Speedway through Humpy Wheeler. Last question, Steve. Do you remember the very first issue coming out? What I do remember is getting a copy of it and looking it over, and I'll be very honest with you. Uh, It didn't impress me, because as we have said several times, it was a mixture of press releases and... Mug shots provided by Winston. That's pretty much what yeah, it was. Yeah. But later, when the paper started to pick up steam and pick up a, something of a staff and actually covering the races, I got more impressed with what was going on because this paper slowly but surely and steadily was growing and having more influence on NASCAR fans. And I think for it to come to that point, from where it started, which you and I have seen that issue. I mean, come on, we, we laugh. I yeah, mean, there's yeah. no question. It is quaint. Right. Yeah. But to see it come from that to a yeah. point four or five years later when it was having letters to the editors and mailing out copies and all that sort of thing is really remarkable. Do you have any idea how many issues they printed of that? No, I sure don't. It couldn't have been many. I would venture a guess it wouldn't have been much more than a couple of thousand if that. Right. I think you're right. It is kind of cool to be able to say that I own one of the, what would have to be a very, very few that survive to this day. This is Andy Petrie, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. All right, I'll concede you won the championship in this cockamamie system. (laughs) (laughs) You said it, I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Let's go by points, though. Tell me the points differences between the old Winston Cup points and even the new point system. Who wins? Hey, listen, you were the one that didn't want to do the Winston Cup standings, okay? 
I admit that. <laughs> I'm just trying to save face. But here, it's kind okay? of grown on you a little bit, hasn't it? <laughs> Current points, you led at the end by 36 points. I and, win. And in the Winston Cup standings, you're up by 57 points. So you win twice to my one win. (laughs) Okay, here's the deal. I will go to the NASCAR Hall of Fame at your display and hand out newspapers. All right. Okay. We got to come up with something here because you are the champion under the playoff system where basically the winner takes all. Yeah. Okay. Okay. You're the winner then. Now we got to do something for you. We got to do something for the listeners too. Okay. Here's how we take care of them. Come on down to the Raceway Grill. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that'd be involved somehow. Yeah. 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 I'm, uh, some way, somehow, I'm going to get a Raceway Grill meal out of this. So <laughs> how about we just do that? How about we come up with a deal at the Raceway Grill? Okay. Well, I knew the Raceway Grill had to get into this somehow. <laughs> yes, sir. No question yeah, about yeah. it. But I'm thinking we got to go bigger. In other words, we bigger is the, better. Yes, indeed. We bring in the Raceway Grill. Let's also add to it the folks at Darlington Raceway. Okay, okay? yeah. Get the Speedway involved. Okay. And that way, I think we can put on a bigger show to attract more fans, and they can come get their free issue of the commemorative Darlington scene from me. How about Carrie, Dennis, are you listening? <laughs> We're coming for you, buddy. <laughs> 